That's what a mom sense is a show that is informative, engaging, and inclusive. So it makes perfect sense to not discount the dads in our audience. Here to shed light on a father's perspective is my co-host, Michael Perry, founder of Maple, a parenting app with a mission to create a support system for families so the days are manageable, daily tasks are checked off, and there's harmony in your household. Michael is a trailblazer in tech and is a loving husband and devoted father to his two boys. Together, we bring you a special monthly series called What What Matters Matters Most with Maple. When I became a dad, I wondered where my dad groups at. I made it my life mission to provide parents with the support they needed to best take care of their families and want to make sure all perspectives in the parental experience are equal and fair. So moms, dads, and everyone in your village, be sure to tune in to What Matters Most with Maple on That Total Mom Sense each month. We've got got you. Why is crypto so cryptic? Today, we're joined by the founders of Early Bird, who are going to help Michael and I navigate our new world of NFTs and invest in our future, quite literally, a new wave of finance and providing a safety net for our children. Today, we're joined by Jordan Wexler, CEO and co-founder, and Will Steiner, head of content and literacy at Early Bird. It's the easiest way to invest in our children's future. In minutes, parents can set up a modern portfolio, schedule recurring contributions, and invite friends and family on the journey. They're encouraging us to build our nest today. Jordan and Will, welcome to What Matters Most with Maple. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thanks. Welcome, guys. Yes. So let's kick it off with, you know, the, I feel like the pressing question, especially for those who are not as much in the know, why is crypto so cryptic? Can you break down blockchain for us, please? (laughs) Absolutely. It's the same reason that personal finance or finance in general is cryptic. For a lot of people, it's a lot of new terms. It's heavily, you know, jargon laden. The people who are writing about it, they're not teachers or they haven't, you know, studied learning, experience design. So what you get is just like a barrage of content. You know, the internet is flooded with explainers. It's flooded with articles. It's flooded with all this stuff. But it's like, if I'm the person who's coming into this for the first time and I'm like, where do I start? How do I get started with this? That's a tense moment to say the least. Right. And you, so finding out like, so how do I get started? How do I break into the terminology? There's all these different lenses to it. See everything that's happening sort of culturally on social media. You've got the history, which is, you know, really starts with the history of money and You've got all this new lingo, um, challenges, criticisms, you know, so it's a complex topic in its own right, as is just money more generally. So an NFT is a non-fungible token. How is that the new currency? Can you explain how it all works? I wouldn't go so far as to say as NFTs are necessarily the new currency, but like, let's maybe start, well, we can start with like blockchain in general. With blockchain, I mean, the real question is like, why is it, what is hard about digital money? Right. When you go and you pay with a credit card at a bank or you go to the grocery store, you buy some groceries on your credit card. There's somebody in the middle there saying, hey, this person has this amount of money and we're going to make sure that that amount of money that they told you that they were going to pay is going to end up in your bank account. So there's some trusted third party, whether that's Visa, whether that's just like your bank account, um, whether that's PayPal, who is being an intermediary between buyers and the sellers. So what blockchain achieves 
is it removes that middleman. It's a decentralized way to solve the challenge with digital money. In the simplest possible terms, if I want to spend some Bitcoin, I can send that money to someone else, right? And that's great, but it's like before that money actually goes to that person, it goes and it sits in a waiting room for about 10 minutes. And while it's in that waiting room, there are a bunch of people, miners in the background, essentially competing for the right to publish that transaction along with others onto this long sort of history of transactions. And the reason it sits in that waiting room is so that everybody can kind of like can agree on what transactions are there. And then they can use cryptography and a fancy thing called a hash function to sort of like earn the right to be the miner who publishes that to the blockchain. We could get way more technical if we want to. I don't think we do. The point is there's all these people who are participants in this network who are sort of working to verify and validate transactions. And then that history of transactions doesn't sit with any single one of those people. It sits with a whole bunch of quote unquote nodes who are all over the world running you know, Bitcoin software on their computer and essentially working together to ensure that everybody has like a up-to-date version of the blockchain. What you just explained though, that's not exclusive to Bitcoin, right? Because I think that a lot of people are very familiar with Bitcoin because it's been around the longest as it relates to a cryptocurrency, but that waiting room analogy, uh, the ledger system of the blockchain, that is applicable to Ethereum, Solana. Is there other coins that also that people are starting to familiarize themselves with that, that those same rules kind of apply? Yes and no. Bitcoin is the easiest example because it's the large, you know, it's the one that probably people are going to come back to time and time again because it's the largest by market cap and it's one of the, you know, very first blockchains. Solana and Ethereum are similar to Bitcoin. You know, they, they're a little bit different in how everybody agrees on the history of transactions. Ethereum and Bitcoin currently both use something called proof of work, which is, yeah. you know, requires all these people running, all these miners running specialized computers that, that consumes a lot of electricity. And Ethereum is like switching this sort of technical piece of how they agree on what's on blockchain to something called proof of stake, which is less energy intensive. It's fascinating to me. And I know that this conversation is about finance because I think that there is a financial literacy gap in America as a whole that is incredibly problematic as we all want to do its best for our children. And it's a very scary thing. And you know, excited about companies like Early Bird trying to make the, the hard things easier. But crypto messes with me, man, because I'm also like an environmentalist and very much scared about human extinction. For parents who share a similar fear about that and the trend line that Earth is on, how would you encourage them to get behind kind of what's happening in the crypto world, knowing how energy intensive it is? I think I read somewhere at one point that Bitcoin uses per day more energy than Google, Facebook, and Apple combined. The question, how much energy should a non-state monetary system consume? We don't have a great baseline to compare that too, because all of our current monetary systems rely on governments and central banks. Then there's a sort of, there's energy consumption and then there's energy emissions. And, you know, I've seen somewhere along the way that like Bitcoin's emissions, while they may consume as much energy as a place like Argentina, the emissions are more on par to a place like New Zealand. And like, they've got, you know, like 40 people and a couple of sheep over there. So I'm a kid, but like the question of emissions is like a more nuanced way to look at the Bitcoin energy problem. And then the thing that I sort of alluded to prior, which was like the consensus mechanism, which is proof of work for Bitcoin, highly energy intensive. Other blockchains are looking to make use of more energy efficient 
consensus mechanism renewable and things yeah well there's yeah there's the where's the energy coming from and like about 40 percent of bitcoin's energy comes from renewables some of it is like waste energy and then but it, it is a lot of energy from coal and oil an angle to this also is like what are governments incentivizing you know, right. if we are incentivizing and subsidizing clean energy use, you'll have more miners going and making use of energy sources that are cleaner. Sure. It's it's not so cut and dry as like Bitcoin uses a lot of energy. It's like, yes, that's true. But Bitcoin's also the only way that, for example, a refugee could take a good chunk of money totally. across the border. You know, it's totally. the only way where it's like, totally. hey, if the government wants to crack down on, on, on protesters, it's like, well, they could freeze your bank account assets. You know, it's like, there's always trade-offs, right? There's trade-offs. And there's also, you know, there's a lot of people sit on different positions on that as a whole. I didn't mean to deviate the conversation because I know that our audience is trying to get helpful tips and education on A, um, why they should probably be going and signing up for early bird and B, just trying to build familiarity with crypto. But as an enthusiast of technology, I'm always so interested in like the, the actual processing power and what it takes to actually make all this work is fascinating. Yeah, and I think that... Uh... The underlying theme, clearly, from Will, who is, I would say, a deep expert in the space of crypto and blockchain technology, and he's, you know, definitely putting the hours to study and learn it. It's extremely complicated. There's a lot of education required. And a reference that I'm going to be using throughout this podcast is actually Gemini just put out this incredible survey, basically the state of crypto, about over 30,000 users responded to their survey. And the number one barrier entry that was across the board was education, that they basically respondents were nearly twice as likely to say that more educational resources on the cryptocurrency would allow them to actually get involved in crypto. And so and I think this is the general problem with any kind of new hot topic, right? You get these buzzwords that are cool and fun and you say them out loud and cryptography and, you know, you ask someone three more questions beyond that and they're like, uh, yeah, <laughs> I have no like, idea. Yeah, so, I'm just in here to make money. You know, that's yeah. what a lot of people are seeing is like, they're seeing people make tons of money in various ways, right? We How many pump and dump schemes have we seen where someone who has a big social following will rev up their, like, you know, their content yeah, totally. around something. And then once it sort of hits its apex, they're like, I'm out of here. And right. the people who came in late, you know, are left sort of. Yeah. And that's why it's cryptic. You asked why it's cryptic. Like, the, so the other three things of why people have not bought crypto yet are the three core things: trust that they literally just think, "Well, what is this?" There's no trust there. There's no there's no government backing it. Like, there's a foundational trust issue. Security. You keep hearing all these crazy stories. Like yesterday, six hundred fifty billion dollars like taken from you know. If you don't read, just read the headline. Of course, there's certain scare. Like, oh, my money's not safe. And the third, of course, is volatility. You see Bitcoin up at sixty five thousand dollars, down to thirty thousand dollars, and you know to be able to ride that wave and understand truly what it is, which is why we're having this conversation, and have the confidence of knowing that. You're not investing this, hopefully, for day trading, although some people do. But really, the purpose at Early Bird is that we are looking at what is the future going to look like? What can we hedge our bet on that is going to be impactful in that future? And 100% blockchain technology as a foundational component of the global economy is here to stay and being proven you know, a hundredfold right now with, of course, the unfortunate situations in Ukraine and, and how money is being moved, and even in Russia, people with freezing bank accounts. And so I think that foundational knowledge of, of 
looking forward, knowing that if you buy this asset, it's really an asset in your portfolio for the long term. I think we can begin shifting that worry, though the public sentiment that like, you know, this is just a fad or it's going to crash tomorrow or whatever that might be. Well, tell us the inspiration behind Early Bird and why you built this company. The inspiration actually all started when my beautiful baby niece was born, Izzy, four years ago, head over heels in love. And I found myself as the uncle that was spending hundreds of dollars on the most ridiculous stuff you could ever imagine, wasting my money and wanting to give her something more that I know would have a bigger impact in her life than just little Nick shoes that she never wore. And I you know, looked around and I found that there was no simple or meaningful way to gift a financial asset especially to a child. My life changed. When I was 10 years old, my dad gave me some money in a TD Ameritrade account. He gave me one rule. I couldn't take out the money. And I just got super into what is investing and how does it all work and built this wonderful relationship with my father around what is the impact of companies and, and how they really can scale and grow. And, and I ended up using those funds to fund my first startup called Succeed Overseas. And I, from that point, I always knew that to be able to give that beautiful privilege from day one of every child some kind of financial foundation and to parent with financial literacy so that you're really teaching this child at five years old, six years old, seven years old, that they have these investments, they own these, these are their investments and talking that and have that conversation plus financial empowerment that this is literally their money can ultimately equal financial freedom, which is our goal at Early Bird so that every child has equal access to be able to really make the decisions that they want and pursue their dreams. And we really believe it starts with being that checklist item for any new parent that has a kid, you set up that early bird account to start investing in their future. And then you bring together the community of amazing, loving uncles and aunts and cousins and anyone else to be able to accelerate the process of generational wealth. Many people have heard people talk about compound interest or like everybody usually says like, oh, I just wish I'd started earlier. I mean, just a crazy stat here, you know, making a couple of assumptions on how the market performs, but like if you get $5,000 into an account for someone before they're two years old, that's $45,000 when they turn 18. They don't need to save for retirement if they just let that sit there for their whole life. You know, it's like, you think about all the, all the money that's going to your, maybe a Roth IRA or into your 401k. It's like the advantage of having 18 extra years of compounding is unbelievable what that could right. produce for someone. Maybe if you can speak a little bit more directly to our audience, because I think a lot of people, myself included, are worried about volatility, volatile markets. Like, Why would somebody who's uncomfortable, unfamiliar, go down the, the path? Or why do you think they need to go down the path of investing into crypto for their children versus, per se, buying like a bond? So there's two ways to think about this. The first, we'll talk about crypto and its role and sort of the long-term portfolio. And then we'll talk a little bit about just volatility in general. And the first is like, our perspective is that crypto is just another part of a diversified portfolio. We're not saying put a, you know all your eggs in one basket. It's crypto has a risk profile. So it's more volatile, but the returns have been better. And that should be sitting in that portfolio right along you know, fund, stock market funds and a couple bonds. In a grander sense, it's like, hey, this is a piece of this bigger puzzle. That's From right. a volatility standpoint, like volatility, if you let it bother you in the short term, your behavior will impact your returns. But kids are in this amazing position where it's like, they don't need to respond to the market's volatility. It's not like they're trying to 
pull out funds in the next five years because they're approaching retirement. You know, so it's like that's one of the luxuries of starting so young is you kind of can just set it, forget it, ignore what's happening day to day, which is a pretty generally good thing to do for most investors. Like when the market's going crazy, like the best thing you can usually do is just do nothing. And and stocks are especially resilient to market volatility. I mean, in World War II from 1939 up to 45, like the average, you know, return was about 7%. So like, I think in every war, you know, major war that the U.S. has been involved in, at least stocks have performed pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. I think diversification is everything, right? When you're investing, you want to make sure that first and foremost, you have a thesis, right? So like, what do you want to invest and how do you want to invest? That's what early bird helps to craft for you. Because a lot of people, Hmm. what is that? Right. But you know, early bird helps you build an investor profile. And as uh, Will was just talking about, three key principles of that investor profile. What is your time horizon? How many years do you have or your child has before they're going to need this money? That's the first major question, right? And that's why for a younger kid, really, you know, the beauty is even hopefully if it's at college, great, that's your time horizon because you're not going to be able to pay for college and you want this funds for that. Wonderful. If it's past college, great. They can continue to invest that for X amount of years. Then it's risk tolerance. If you see Bitcoin drop 50%, if you see the market drop 20%, or is that going to make you petrified and you want to completely, you want to liquidate your money right away? If yes, then you need to make sure that you're tolerant, that you are investing maybe, you know, that crypto percentage isn't maybe 20% of your portfolio, but yeah, it's, it's five. five. Yeah, exactly. that's right. So it's it's just adjust accordingly so that ultimately, though, you're creating this holistic portfolio with an early bird specifically for your child, following that thesis. And then most importantly, is you're following the number one successful behavior of any investor, dollar cost averaging. So you are setting aside every month or week, whatever you can handle, a specific amount of money that you know that you know, it's not for groceries or essentials, but that you have left over, maybe instead of buying that Starbucks coffee that is now like $7 and, you know, taking three of those coffees out, which is $21 now a month. And you're putting that away every month, no matter what, so that you're investing at the bottom of the, of the dropout to the middle, to the top, but it all averages out to the correct diagram of your returns. Funny you say, I just bought an iced coffee and they rang me up at six dollars. Uh, insane, six dollars for a coffee? What, what world I can't do it anymore. Six dollars for a coffee? Just Think about twenty years, six dollars invested. You got you know like thirty five bucks. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> it becomes expensive when you start looking at it that way. It's like a thirty five dollar coffee, right? Exactly. Can you walk us through the process, like you know what you did with Izzy or what? Michael can do with, you know, his baby Solomon? Like, how can we set up our kids sub five to, to build their portfolio over time? Yeah. So on early bird, it can be for a parent with any child, any age of zero to 18. These are custodial investment accounts. Mm-hmm. Um, so really the custodian is the parent generally sets up an account for their kid and it's an investment account and it's the ownership of the child. So we encourage, of course, to get started as early as possible. So we're focused on that earlier demographic. But a parent, there's two ways to get started. One is if you are a giver like Uncle Jordan or any of us that have little ones in our lives, and instead of going to Target or Amazon to buy some plastic toy that is waste, one of our phrases is gift wealth, not waste. Mm-hmm. And to be able to literally download the app or just go to our website at earlybird.io-gift 
and you can select who you want to send it to, select how much you want to invest. And then one of the most unique proponents of early bird is that you can record a beautiful video memory to add this wonderful emotional connection to the process of financial gifting. Because what we found is that just giving someone a hundred dollar check, it's kind of meaningless. It doesn't do anything really right. That check gets lost, but to be able to invest a specific amount of capital with an emotional connection to it and some kind of legacy moment of me at 33 years old. And then to Izzy will have these videos when she's 20 and I'm 55 and she can look <laughs> back at all the money I invested and me being ridiculous. But to see the love that I have for her and then the capital that can really support her dreams, that's what we are really, really embedded in. That's on the giver side. And you click send and that gets sent off to the parent that doesn't have an early bird account. And then they can accept the gift and set up their own early bird account. So that's one way. The other way, of course, is the parent who was able to download the app today and within three minutes build their investor profile. So, you know, we take a couple different pieces of information and then we recommend a managed fixed portfolio for the parent. There's five portfolios ranging from conservative to aggressive. So depending on your risk tolerance, time horizon, the age of your child, all that, we give you the recommendation. Then you select that. You're able to then customize it with some other ETFs if, if, if you want. And then you set a reoccurring investment and you're set. In four minutes, you can start investing in your child's future and truly set them up for, for success. One thing I'll add, which is a nice thing about these portfolios, if someone's never heard the phrase ETF, the way that Early Bird builds its portfolio is to, is to bake diversification into that process so that you don't have to think like, oh, wait, should I buy Amazon or should I buy you know Tesla or should I buy this other stock? It's like, the question should not be like what individual stocks you're buying. It should be over the long periods of time, we know that the total stock market goes up and to the right. So we're going to give you a portfolio that gives you exposure to as many, you know, big chunks of the stock market, um, which takes a lot of the like psychological angst out of investing as well, which parents don't need any more of that. That's a nice feature of the portfolio. And the last thing I'll just add to this is like, I've got a, a baby girl coming in a few months here. I know I'm going to get some things wrong. Like it's inevitable, but I am very trying to be very thoughtful about making sure I get the big things right. This is one of those things that it's like, it's not only, you know, am I going to be able to help her, you know, with her education around money? And that's a big focus of early bird as well as helping parents become people who can give good financial advice to their kids, but also like she will have a portfolio when she turns 18, you know? And so that education going hand in hand with exposure to the stock market, with skin in the game, you know, that's going to be life-changing for her. But I know every parent should or wants to or feels the stress of it and the thousands of conversations I have of how should I be preparing for college? They want to gift their children education, specifically people who are self-made or are coming up on their own or immigrant families, people who want to change the trajectory of their family. The path forward to that typically is college education. So maybe if you could speak to, because I'm familiar with it, but I don't know if our audience is, is why should a family set up a custodial account, i.e. something via early bird versus like a 529 and yep. the, the trade-off benefits of those two things, because they're substantial. We studied all these different vehicles, did tons of user testing with parents and really what they want, what they're looking for. And what we found was that 529 plans are a really good investment vehicle for the parent to invest money for college savings. They are tax exempt accounts, which means that money that goes in, when you liquidate, when you sell that to, to, to actually have then those funds, there's no tax to it if it is spent 
for accredited institutional spend. So it has to be spent for basically college, right? So it really helps with tuition and it also can help with books and other things uh, that are related to education, but it is really an investment account for a parent. What we realized, what we found with so many of our conversations that one, a lot of parents don't actually have any idea what the next 20 years are going to look like as far as traditional four-year education. And there's definitely some awareness about, well, you know, I'm just not sure and I want a little bit more flexibility. And so a custodial investment account is the really other vehicle. It's under UGMA, which is called the Uniform Gifts for Minors Act, which allows you to invest in a vehicle for a kid. Also has some tax benefits, but definitely not tax exempt for college. But the biggest thing about that is, is, is the ownership of the child. So our vision and dream in early birds is that you set this up at zero years old and you're putting away money. By four years old, you are sitting with your kid and saying, look, this is your account. You own this. This is yours. Here's some beautiful videos of grandma and grandpa. And like, this is part of your life and you will take ownership of this. At 10, we have a ton of great material for parents to teach their kids and talk to them about what do you want to invest in? Like, let's do this more together. At 13, this is down the roadmap, but we want to have an app for the child to be able to actually take ownership of it. So that at 18 or 21, depending on the state, when they take ownership, it's a celebration, but it is absolutely a known process. And then they have a primary brokerage account with Early Bird, and they continue to invest with us for X amount of years. So it's really a different vehicle. We honestly recommend looking at what are your needs? What do you value? And then figure out how much you can put away a month in total, say it's $100, have both accounts, and then figure out the distribution. Is it 50-50? 529 plan call savings in a custodial investment account? Is it 80-20 or switched either way? And that's really what we recommend when you're thinking about the different types of vehicles. Yeah, I love that. I think so often when it comes to savings, especially when you have very little to contribute, you think it's like this or that. It's one choice when I think it's really important to recognize that it's oftentimes best to think within and, even if it's a dollar a month, a dollar a day, a dollar a week, And I think it's important for our audience to be aware that there is not one silver bullet to preparing for the future. Um, There's a lot of different cards you got to be willing to sit in. So thank you for the clarification of that. Totally. I assume anyone listening to this, right? Everyone's hearing about inflation right now, right? Inflation, what's going on with inflation? What the hell am I doing? One of the big questions that I always think about and get asked is, you know, how much cash should I have on hand, right? How much cash is too much cash to have on hand? And if I have $100,000 in my bank account, is that a good thing, a bad thing? Should I invest that? How much should I invest? And I think, you know, at Early Bird, we're trying to help educate these processes. And so my question to, to Will, who is, you know, extremely well-versed in all this, is kind of, what is the strategy right now, thinking about cash, cash on hand, cash in a savings account versus moving maybe some of those funds into an investment account right now to make sure it's working for you? Great question. Cash is amazing for short-term goals and an emergency fund. Beyond that, you know, an emergency fund could be, if you find look at this up on the internet, it'll say, hey, you want to have three to six months of expenses saved up. A short-term goal, maybe you, if you want to put a down payment on a house in three to five years, right? Or maybe you have, there's some vacation that you're saving up for. Like you don't necessarily want to put away money into the, the mar- market and then you see a big dip and you're like, okay, actually got to kick our vacation out six more months. But beyond that, you know, if it's just money sitting in a savings account, it will lose its purchase power 
due to inflation. So places to put money, if you're thinking, hey, how do I minimize the impact you know, to my savings on behalf of inflation? Like stock market is a great one. Many of the companies in the stock market have the ability to pass the impacts of inflation onto their customers. I'm not taking a stance here saying like, oh, it's great when companies raise their prices, but as a place to put your money, the total stock market in general does a pretty good job of outpacing inflation. Inflation is a regressive tax on the middle class, lower middle class, lower class, you know, on poor people. It's like, it is a truly cruel thing that is, you know, you can argue about its sources, but ultimately it's what's going to happen when more money comes into sort of the circulation, into circulation without a, a corresponding, you know, creation of value. And what everyone knows, you know, from the memes or from wherever, it's like our central banks have been just, have been printing money like crazy over the last few years. And that ultimately does have long-term consequences, which, you know, is another one of those things that sort of brings us back to crypto, at least one of the arguments of crypto is like Bitcoin, and I'll just use Bitcoin as an example, but Bitcoin has a fixed supply. You know, you can't, you're never going to see more than 21 million coins. That, that, you know, that has good and bad aspects of it as well. You know, like there's always trade-offs. This is a challenging time and people are feeling it at the grocery store, at the gas pump. And I hope my comments about, oh, the stock market as a place, you know, don't come off too too insensitive. No, I mean, I think that you're giving great guidance and insight. I think that there's a reality that people are finding themselves in a very delicate and sensitive place. And it's very, very unfortunate that we do find ourselves in the place that we're in. But that doesn't take away from the fact that at some point life should get better and people still need to be informed and educated when they're in a position to contribute to the financially contribute in that way for their children. They're contributing in the short term right now to keeping their children alive and God bless them all for trying their best to do it. But the education is still needed to be shared and circulated. So I don't, I hope it's not coming off as tone deaf either. I don't, I don't see it that way. You know, this podcast is what matters most. So what matters most to both of you? My future children. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's like, my know my wife and I want to have a couple kids, you know, raising them in a way where they are independent, capable, and prepared to take smart risks. They feel like respect from myself and my wife from from day one. Like I just I want them to have fantastic lives. And and I know that you know from just personal experience, it's like if you can have deeply you know healthy relationships with folks, you know you're doing meaningful work and you're spending time, you know doing, you know, activities and hobbies that you're passionate about, like that will happen. So how do I foster an environment where that can unfold? That's, those are the questions that, you know, we're, those are the conversations that my wife and I are having. Yeah. That's so great. We're so excited for you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think what matters most for me is truly the mission and vision that early bird is building towards is that's my kind of life right now, which is to democratize access to generational wealth and to make it not a historical process that has been catered to the top 1% upper white socioeconomic individuals and to make this idea of equal access to building these, you know, a better financial future for all kids in the world, period. That is really what matters most to me today because I've seen what it can be and how it can change the entire neurological 
brain of a, of a child that knows that they have this support, that they have this foundation, that they have people that love them, which is part of the meaning of these videos and contributing to somebody and bringing your community involved so that you can know that you can fall back on that because uh, life's tough and you're going to have ups and downs and this ability to really know that that foundation is there so that you can pursue the incredible dreams that you most likely have. That to me is what truly, truly matters most and what we are doing everything we can to, to try to accomplish. And where can our listeners find you, find Early Bird? Early Bird, you can go to getearlybird.io. And there you can find lots about us. Of course, you can download our app on both the App Store and the Google Play Store. Type in Early Bird, one word. Yeah, we would love to, to have you join our community and send some gifts and set up an account for your kids as, you know, hopefully it can be a really powerful tool to, to build a better financial future for everyone. Also can discover them inside of Maple. And inside Maple, which has been a yes. wonderful partner of ours. We're really excited to be part of that community as well. That's great. No, as parents, I think uh, we're all about community and helping one another and sharing our insights. It, it's great that, you know, we got to have this chat with you today and learn so much. And, you know, we're, we're just excited to be part of what you're building with you. So thank, thank you. Thank you so much for having us. This is a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you. As we all know, the early bird gets the worm. And I think it's great that we got to dive in to this chat about personal finance and crypto with the early bird team. Thank you, Will and Jordan, for your time and your insights. We learned a lot. And I think we have been able to educate parents a little more on their options when it comes to investing and creating a portfolio for our children. If you'd like to be on What Matters Most with Maple, write to us at thatstotalmomsense at gmail.com. You can listen to this episode and our entire series on my website, thatstotalmomsense.com and within the Maple app. You can download that on iTunes or Google Play. And of course, you can tune into this podcast episode wherever you get your podcasts. We are on Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, Good Pods, everywhere. Thank you all for listening and paying attention to what matters most. We'll see you next time.